All right, recording this after the first game seven of the evening, Celtics and Bucks. A disappointment in the end, Danny, that it wasn't closer, didn't give us a, a fitting dramatic conclusion to this series. I think in the end, though, this was a just result. It didn't feel like this is what was coming after game five, and the Celtics looked like they were going to take control of the series. Instead, they blew that fourth quarter lead as the Bucks went six for six from three, and Boston, did, I believe, did not attempt a single three. If not, they didn't make one. And then we got the next game at TD Garden was an incredible reversal of fortune. Kevin Pelton had this stat. This ties game six of the OKC Golden State Warriors Western Conference Finals for the largest difference in made three-pointers in NBA history. Boston sets an NBA game seven record with 22 made threes. And Milwaukee has the fifth worst three-point shooting performance of a team that attempted 25 or more. Yeah, the second team in NBA playoff history to attempt at least 33s and not make at least five of them. Pelton had that as well. Utah going three of 30 against Dallas in game five this year was the other such game. So a historically bad three-point shooting night for the Bucs. Celtics had a very good one, although that's in large part due to, at least in the first half, the Bucks' strategy, and by the fourth quarter, the Bucks just being completely exhausted in addition to their strategy. But when I say it's it's a just result, I, just over the course of the series, I thought that Boston was largely the better team and I credit Milwaukee for getting this far like they had that incredible comeback in game five game one they just basically I don't know if I want to say surprised the Celtics but just the Lopez Giannis at the rim it just got to be something that they really struggled to deal with and it took them a while to get used to that being a factor in the series however in the end and I thought the Bucks largely did some pretty good stuff tactically some things on the margins that didn't work out but they just had a much more flawed roster without chris middleton frankly even with chris middleton available than the celtics like the celtics kind of have one i guess you could say mini weakness and that they're they don't look like an amazing shooting team and i guess the bucks tried to exploit that at times throughout the series in addition to that just being kind of what the bucks do but I mean, if you just look at this bucks roster in the end yeah, they shot 433, but they don't have like unbelievable three-point shooters on this team. Like the all-offense guys they have, like Allen and Portis, they're solid offensive players, but they're not like great offensive players to where they could push the offense to be good enough to overcome some of their defensive failings. I mean, the, the Bucks' fourth best player in the series was a guy that they picked up at midseason on a minimum contract, Wes Matthews. I also thought that the Bucks' limited talent showed up in terms of the decisions that Mike Budenholzer had to make. So yeah. there were times where they they wanted a little bit more offense on the floor, but then they couldn't play certain defensive schemes. Like you can't. And I thought Budenholzer overall in the series, especially in game seven, was too reluctant to switch and that they had better personnel, even if it's not the best use of Brooke Lopez, you could still do some things there. But switching is untenable when Grayson Allen's on the floor and he had a better defensive first half. But we also saw Boston go after Grayson Allen aggressively in the third quarter as they built out the lead that became insurmountable. And you could say, well, then you bring in, okay, bring in someone else. Maybe you bring in Javon Carter, you bring in George Hill, or I mean, Connaughton is the obvious fix for some of that. And these were exacerbated by Chris Middleton being unavailable, but they just didn't have options. They didn't have enough two-way players. And then if you wanted to go more offensive, if you want to go more offensive, then those guys were going to be attacked defensively. And if you wanted to go more defensive, then you got this kind of a shooting performance. Yeah, I think the way I want to go through this game is chronologically as 
things kind of evolved because it became clear right at the beginning that the Bucks were going to emphasize Brooke Lopez more than they had. And Brooke Lopez ended up playing 37 minutes. Recall that I think he, in game six, he only was in like the 20 minute or so range. And so that meant that it, they weren't going to have him switch, which I think they still could have like tried to do. They they tried at the very end, like a switch double with Lopez and Pritchard hit, hit a big three, but things that was already in the fourth quarter when things were out of hand. Well, so I think, and, I think we should walk if, if people weren't, weren't watching the game or, you know, if hopefully they, some of them were watching on our playback stream, which was a lot of fun. The tactical wrinkle right. that Budenholzer added with aggressively leaving Brooke Lopez in the paint in the early part of the game, it looked great. Milwaukee held Boston to one shot in the restricted area in that first quarter. And also, importantly, Boston only took two corner threes in that first quarter because some of it after Grant Williams particular, but some Derek White were missing. Then they just stopped taking as many of those. And instead, some of that became above the break threes and some of that became twos and twos outside the paint. The Boston Celtics in that first quarter, one of nine. Yeah, and some of those were difficult because Lopez was there at the rim. And so they might like kind of beat their man, but then they had to stop short and that guy could recover and make it difficult. Transition was huge, though, for Boston early on in the game to at least get something and then Tatum going four or four from three really kind of saved them Grant Williams ended up three of eight in the first half but made a couple late and it was there's definitely some cringiness of him just being left wide open on corner threes and just kind of you could just sort of feel the ghost coming in his head of like wow I am really open here like their strategy is to leave me open like this is these are more open than even normal open shots that I would be taking and Derek White even more so Derek White missed all four history pointers because they were just having Lopez guard either Williams or White and just hang out in the paint and make things really difficult for the Celtics to get to the basket. So Tatum hitting four of four on his threes. They did also take advantage of Lopez in the paint by screening for Tatum, which is something that they did more of. And they kind of got better and better as things went on. Meanwhile, on the other end, Giannis had an amazing first quarter with 10 points. I think it was six assists, six rebounds and scoring or assisting on all but one of the Bucks baskets. Correct. The only one he, they, they, Giannis got a very brief rest. He sat for about a minute and 20 seconds at the end of the first. And there was one play where Drew Holiday took a contested layup. He missed it. Lopez got a tip in. Only play that Giannis didn't score. He also took all of their free throws during that first quarter. And if you want to go overall in the first half, the Milwaukee Bucks made 17 field goals. Giannis made six of those himself and he assisted on another seven. So that was 13 of 17 in the first quarter, in the first half. Sorry. Yeah, and honestly, with the Bucks' defensive strategy overall, the Celtics did bomb a bunch of threes. They're 22 of 55 from three. Only ended up with a 110 offensive rating, even while shooting a pretty good percentage from three, 40%. You know, they were still, and they were 45% from two, but a, a lot of that was compiled in the second half too. When in the first half, they were well below 40% for most of the half. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll actually, I'll walk through Boston shot chart in the first, yeah. first half. Five of eight in the restricted area, so they did get there a lot. Lot more in that second quarter lopez also sat more of the second quarter two of ten from floater range oh for five from mid-range and so that's they were two for 15 on twos away from the basket and one for five on corner threes during that first half as well you brought up 
Grant Williams struggles. Also, Derek White was 0 for 3 in the first quarter and 0 for 4 overall in the first half. Grant Williams started getting it, started getting in stride during that second quarter, which of course continued. Yeah. And, and quickly, when you, you mentioned that, I thought it was important for Grant that they actually kind of started running some actions to like get him a shot. Yes. Because to make it so it's more just your normal in, in rhythm, rhythm open shot. Yeah. It, it, even though it was in-game action you could imagine how that would make somebody cold you're and also you're just like standing in the corner you're not really moving you're not in the flow of the offense all you're doing is just sitting there and I, I thought that was was good and you brought this up before but it bears repeating the other way that you can attack a rim protector leaving a sh- capable shooter open or even a non-capable shooter Draymond Green does this all the time is use them as a screener and the Celtics did that when the Bucks were in a drop coverage in games five and six at different moments and they did it a little bit in game seven as well but it also like that there was a couple pick and pop threes that grant williams you know that's something that he does within boston's offense yeah or, or pick and pops where they would even set him a another screen to get sure. open as well so it wasn't just like all right i've been standing here in the corner the whole time for 20 seconds not being guarded they attack the room they throw it to me and nobody closes out of me and i have to shoot it it was more just in rhythm the the normal type of shots that you would expect and one thing that, that also started happening middle of the second or so is they turned off the water on Giannis finally and part of it was him missing layups both late in the second and then particularly in the second half he probably had four or five layups where you're just like okay he's around the guy this is a great look he's gonna make this and he just smoked him and perhaps that was due to some level of fatigue with this being such a quick turnaround and being the, the first game of the day. Would have been nice, actually, if they were had made this the second game of the day. But since it was on the East Coast, they weren't going to do that. And ABC gets their pick of the more desirable game, which this one definitely was from a viewership standpoint. Uh, but And he did not get much rest. He played 43 minutes despite sitting out the last two. It was a game seven. But I still think he's just, we saw this at the end of game four, where I don't think Giannis is at his most effective playing 45 minutes like I don't think that's best for the team I think it's best that he plays 40 minutes especially with Chris Middleton out where he has to shoulder so much of the burden offensively but but of course they have nothing else that they can do offensively against this great defense other than having him in which is you know that's again not having Chris Middleton was kind of a problem it it was a problem and it it felt like every Bucks basket when Giannis was not on the floor was some version of a miracle and that put pressure on Budenholzer to keep Giannis on the floor and that ties in with another what felt like big dynamic in this game was in the third quarter, Wes Matthews drives at Jason Tatum and Jason Tatum puts his right arm around Matthews, does not get called for the foul, but then does get called for an offensive foul a couple of trips later. It might have even been the next trip down, which was a correct call. I know there was a lot of, you know, the one of the fun things about doing playback is we're more in our own world, but I did, I happened to be checking Twitter shortly after that and there were all these people aggrieved about it. It was the correct call. Yeah, I think so. I, there, I think we can save that kind of to the end of just this discussion of like how do you deal with some of these elbows and this was an impossible series to referee like this oh. is one of the hard and I think they largely did a good job like there are probably maybe three calls like the, that didn't go that well uh but yeah I mean Tatum goes to the bench and I guess actually before we do that the first half Grayson Allen actually was good defensively like they probably tried to go at him five or six times and I don't think they scored once like he he got over some screens he was just a little tougher even like Tatum in the post one time Tatum tried to back him down yeah there was help behind him 
but he Allen like really stood up was more physical forced Tatum into a fadeaway that's yeah a makeable shot but not one of these oh this guy is a massive liability we can get anything we want against him type of shots and so then in the third quarter the Celtics came out and I thought they really liked their plan which was we're going to go after him even even harder by setting double screens in which Tatum is involved and then setting those in an order that forced Grayson Allen to switch on to Tatum on a pop first Tatum got an open three when Allen and Holiday kind of miscommunicated they didn't want to switch then they're like okay we're going to switch so they do that Tatum being on him you know was able to take advantage he got middle set up a, a three on the other side that was wide open and they also had Grant Williams being guarded by Brooke Lopez in that strong side corner something we've talked about in this series to where Brooke Lopez doesn't want to help on that drive or if he does then it's a wide open corner three to Williams who hit one early in that quarter got another one trailing in transition and also had a dunk early on and that I mean remember the Celtics were only up five and really should have been up by two at halftime and they really pushed it out to double digits almost immediately and then the Bucks never threatened again on the subject of kind of depth and functional depth we also it wasn't a huge part of the a lot of the competitive portion of the game but when the Celtics needed Peyton Pritchard to be on the floor I thought he did a did a very nice job overall in the yeah, first he held up defensively yeah. a couple of times first three quarters Pritchard only played seven minutes made one made one shot but was competitive defensively they weren't they weren't going after Pritchard aggressively and so Boston having and again this was a good I thought this was a very good Daniel Tice game so you know he was competing and had a couple of had a couple of blocks and, and and didn't you know they were doing the same thing in terms of letting him shoot and that wasn't a, wasn't super successful for the Celtics but not having any bad defenders in the rotation made a world of difference so even if some of these guys weren't hitting their shots like Derek White had some real struggles in this I've brought up this point at other junctures in the series Milwaukee's first shot half-court offensive rating in game seven 64.7 yeah that was a truly atrocious and we talked about how poor the Bucks spot-up shooters did in the last game they're just as bad this time Matthews 0 for 3 Allen 0 for 4 Connaughton 0 for 5 Lopez you want to count 1 for Bro- 6 yeah. I was gonna say add Brooke yeah and you know Portis was two out of three and then Giannis hit one right I mean th- those were so they had three spot up threes in the entire game I mean the hilarious thing too they were what three of 18 at halftime and we're like oh well they'll probably shoot better in the second half and then <laughs> they made one three-pointer in the whole second half unbelievable to one, be one of, one of 14 for them in the second half oof and, and you saw oh well at least they're getting up a few more threes and then even that dried up like so it wasn't like the Celtics where they're just being allowed to shoot over and over again it's like they they weren't able to get much at the rim beyond the first quarter when I think they shot like 65 percent from two and so I mentioned Giannis kind of getting the water shut off like he had six assists in the first quarter and three the rest of the game in part because they couldn't hit a three off of his shots but and he also had four free throw attempts in the first quarter and two the rest of the game and he clearly ran out of gas but as the Bucks continued to miss shots the Celtics defense just continued to tighten in the paint and even when they got transition I mean, that's a crazy thing, Danny. Like, they had 17 fast break points out of the 81 
that they scored in this game, and and that's how you get a 64 offensive rating in the half court. Yeah, and the disparity there, Boston had actually one of the highest, which you don't want, half court frequencies. 91.7% of Boston's possessions were in the half court. It was only 78 for the Bucs, which is very good. And when you consider that that Boston had a 110 offensive rating, it's not like it was the other team is missing every single shot, and so we're just getting out on live rebounds. And also, the Bucs only had five steals. So they did a nice job of running when they had the opportunity. It was just that that was the only thing really going well for them offensively for a significant portion of the game. And for for Boston, another reason why that supplemental help for against Giannis was so impressive is that with Robert Williams unavailable, there were some Horford Tice minutes. But outside of that, it's not like that extra player was a real rim protector, but it was somebody who would change things or they would stay in front of Giannis enough and then Horford could step into that spot. And and it was a it was a really nice job. They understood what they were conceding. They understood what they were taking away. And Boston's execution defensively beyond their personnel, like those are separate but connected things. So good. Oh yeah, yeah. And we talked about it after Game Six as well. A couple other kind of smaller notes from this one: the three shot foul at the end of the first half. What did you think of that one? I am. I guess you could say this part of it, please, that the refs, considering it's the same player, it's why I thought of it, didn't make the same mistake that they did last time. And what I mean by that is if this is a foul, to me, it's a three shot foul because what else is Marcus Smart doing? And that was the remember They got that wrong previously in yeah. the series. Well, and that and, and this was in the last second, second. of the quarter. Like, there's nothing too, else right? to do. Right. Was, I think that was probably the biggest difference where it's like, okay, hey, you know what? Normally, because normally they'll just wave that off. It's like, oh, I know I'm getting fouled. I'm going to take a three pointer from way beyond half court that I wouldn't normally take so they don't call it and it just ends up being a non-shooting foul and I mean they were in the bonus anyway so it's, it only cost them one point in the end to be right. a three-shot foul and, and, and I think two. that's a part there, there were a couple pieces of context that the uh, the aggrieved people online kind of kind of missed and so to me a if it's a foul it's a three-shot foul and I'm not a hundred percent I mean I, I didn't watch a ton of replays of this we were taking we took a little bit of a break Giannis may have gotten ball first but there there one of my frustrations with the frustration that has happened with fish eating some of it is, is genuine and correct and their people are getting calls wrong and everything else like that is the perfect being the enemy of the good Giannis swung in on a guy who was taking a jump shot he may have gotten ball first it's possible the refs got that wrong but it's an extremely hard call to like it, it, it your assumption is going to be one way yeah. and he did swing in there and I, I when I saw it live I thought he got ball I thought he got arm first that was the way I saw it and the expectation that there it's everything has to be exactly perfect and there's no margin for error and like i always talk about like the benefit of the doubt that's something when we've done the league pass show i've tried to articulate to viewers is that if you swing if you do some of these things then there there might be an there might be an incorrect call every now and again and that's that that's a part of this but you have to understand it from that perspective and when you get slow-mo replays and you get all the stuff and so it's like it might not have been the correct call but it was certainly within the within the realm of reason yeah well i'll tell you what and this uh, applies to a lot of these things too who is doing a worse job at their job in that situation Giannis for reaching in or the referee by calling the foul of course partisans don't want to blame their own players for doing something but clearly you know that's a borderline call 50 50 yes or no as opposed to you absolutely should not have reached in it's, <laughs> right? it's a, he, it's it's a heave with one second left that he that had a very low chance of going in 
yeah in any event and some of this elbow stuff too just to to get back to that i mean it's just very difficult to call this was such a physical series you've got physical players who are also great at flopping like grant williams and marcus smart going up against Giannis, who's also a really physical player and is probably the most difficult player to referee in the game today you have players where now that it's legal to put your forearm on a guy as long as you don't extend your arm and just like use your forearm as a battering ram that's really tough to deal with the referees are also given this hey if an elbow could be a flagrant foul and what is an abnormal elbow versus just you're going into a normal shooting motion matt moore made this point that like it's you can't bring the ball up to shoot with your elbows like a half inch apart from each other so you don't elbow anyone like you have to have your elbow somewhere if you're gonna bring the ball up to shoot and so like that tatum one for example i thought that was a good call because he actually shifted over either in an attempt to draw the foul on Connaughton or to avoid the strip by Giannis. And so he actually moved his elbow over to the side and that's how he ends up hitting Connaughton in an abnormal fashion. Now, you also have the issue of like, well, Connaughton was basically not in legal guarding position himself and he's about to follow him. Then there was the Giannis one that got overturned where it was just kind of his shoulder and that one like smarts bodying him up, leaning his head forward, you know, into what the space that Giannis would use to go into a normal shooting motion. You know, the Goran Dragic, like, yes, it actually is possible to commit a foul with your face if you're not in legal guarding position. So it's just very, very difficult to deal with. I mean, this is an incredibly physical series. The next series, which we'll talk about probably on Monday, is going to be an incredibly physical series as well um in the end i guess just a couple more things we can talk about while it's fresh here the milwaukee bucks yes this was a defensive loss or or, sorry an offensive loss for them in this last game but i thought some of their earlier losses in this series were defensive losses and just the inability in the end to be have enough defensive versatility against someone like jason tatum not to mention just having another guy who could guard jason tatum other than west matthews or drew holiday who also by the way you need for offense and he would get tired offensively so just not having pj tucker like i think the limitations of portis and grayson allen were very clear in this series and as well as george hill like those are probably the three guys you could say that they chose over retaining pj tucker in terms of giving an offer pj talked about how the bucks told him hey just go get an offer somewhere else and we'll match it and he was like no fuck that like you're not going to take care of me after you have full bird rights on me we just won a championship like you want you want me to go find an offer somewhere else i'll just take an offer somewhere else and uh, i understand why he felt that way and and his team is still playing and 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 also the bucks we don't need to do a full postmortem on him now, but an- that sin compounds with what I think of as, in in some ways, the uh, uh, a significant other one. Maybe not as significant. It's hard there, which is the the lack of production and lack of process in terms of finding players on the margins. And so Milwaukee, when you think about kind of who was on this roster, and they were hurt by Bembry getting hurt, you know, tearing his ACL. I, I don't think he would have helped in this. Series. I don't think he would have helped much. But like, so think about if you. Think about so even if you said Bembry like Teague replaced him on the roster like they had yeah. so many spots tied up in players that we knew had no chance of playing competitive minutes in this yeah. series they, they traded away Dante DiVincenzo which 
I mean, they got a couple of seconds. Maybe those can be used profitably in the future, but they got Serge Ibaka, who was so far away from the floor that he probably couldn't even see the action in this game or, yeah. or this series. And so, like, and then Rajon Tucker, Luca yeah. Vildoza. Like, DiVincenzo probably would have helped them. Like, he would have played over Grayson Allen, I think, in this series. That's why I was like, hey, you really want to extend a guy who's, in theory, is going to be your fourth guard this year and probably should have been if Hill had, I mean, Hill might just be too old at this point. But, you know, having, having to play Grayson Allen that many minutes, even if he was a little bit better defensively in this game, he, He's just not, he was the guy who didn't fit in this high level of a series or against Miami or against Phoenix or Golden State or whoever it would have been in the finals. Like if you really, yeah, he had a nice series against the Bulls in the first round. Congratulations. That's not what the Milwaukee Bucks are trying to do this season. Maybe we need to narrow it from a 16 game player to a 12 or an eight game player. (laughs) Yeah, especially if you're a high seed. But, uh, and also, I mean, the Milwaukee Bucks, despite everything that we're saying, they might have won this series and might have won the championship if Chris Middleton is just healthy. Sure. So, I mean, that, I mean that's the biggest thing. Like the Celt- And the Celtics were miss- essentially missing Robert Williams in the series. I'm not sure how good of a matchup he was against the Bucs But, but the he end. could be significant in the next series if he's available. Yeah. Yeah, he was available in this game. Like, play that available. Available, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and there, was, there was obviously some excitement from Celtics fans that he was active for this game. I think part of the reason there, from Ime Odoka's perspective, was it wasn't like they had they had roster spot they had players on the spots on the 15 that they weren't going to use and as a last like kind of worst case scenario yeah i mean you could do that but i don't know how ready he was to play i think it's pretty apparent considering robert williams didn't play at all and it didn't even seem like they considered it now milwaukee didn't necessarily threaten in the same ways that robert williams would have helped and they missed everything from three but i i think that there's you know a balancing act here with milwaukee that this was both and i agree with i agree with seth partner's statement that this was a a worthy title defense for the bucks they lost sure. and Giannis sure. was was absolutely unbelievable yeah. for six games yeah. like, and part they, of the seven. They, they lost shorthanded without home court advantage and that also hmm let's see how, how, how that that decision the decision to basically cede that to the Celtics. yeah is seems a little bit significant here yeah, yeah and, we've, we've seen some teams have these terrible shooting games in game sevens but some of those come at home right like the celtics in 2018 against the Cavs and the, the rockets, rockets in 2018 against the warriors and they missed the 25 straight or 27 straight i think it was but yeah maybe they uh, it's hard to say that home court necessarily would have changed things maybe it would have in the game seven but the road team did still win four of the seven games in this series sure so and also they would have had a much tougher go of it like we oh we just forget about brooklyn because the celtics swept them but that was a close sweep and they had a very easy series against the bulls and if chris middleton goes down maybe they would have lost to the brooklyn nets sure in the first round so it's I, I can't quite go there as far as saying they made the wrong decision. Like, it would have been nice. I don't know if they win the series anyway, that that actually changed it. But, I mean, in the end, they lost to Game 7 on the road to these guys. And the last thing I wanted to talk about here, and for those who don't remember, obviously, just to finish up that last point, the Bucks essentially lost to the Cavs intentionally on the last day of the season and let the Celtics get the two seed two seed so that they could be assured of the three seed and not have to face Brooklyn the last thing though Jason Tatum got that fourth foul went out the Bucks could have made a run there but instead 
I think it was only 10 when Tatum went out. I think it was like 64-54. And instead, the Celtics extended the lead and, and got it up to mid-double digits by the end of the third with the Bucks just keeping all of their guys on the floor. And well, at that keep, point... Keeping, keeping all their guys on the floor, I think, is... An, is an, that's something... Well, okay, they kept they kept Giannis and Drew on the floor. Yes. But but yeah, so so you, you were not pleased with their defensive strategy during that period. When I think that defense defensive strategy needs to be context-dependent based on you and and your opponent and what happened to the Celtics once Jason Tatum went out is they became a lot less threatening as both a pull-up shooting team and honestly as a driving team and so when that is the case switching becomes significantly more palatable and the the ops the upside that Boston had you're not there aren't as many matchups that they can attack or anything else and so that would have been an opportunity either by changing the Bucks personnel or just changing the scheme they were running to make life harder on Boston and yeah. there was yeah, when you say changing the scheme they're running too I mean not even necessarily switching but just not crazy over helping on every drive the way they often that, that would have helped would. too I would have gone more aggressively but that would have been better than what they did and also yeah, they gave up all these wide open threes off a of penetration that like wasn't really that threatening and I realize they're that's their plan and the math and all that but you but, don't need to stop the initial guy as much when Jason Tatum isn't out there and to a little bit of a pushback it's just remembering the sequencing of the game I'm looking through the box score after Tatum picked up his foul there was also this extended sequence where where they at in the initial part Giannis Drew and Brooke Lopez were on the floor but then Budenholzer stayed with his normal kind of his, more of a normal rotation so there was a period of time that George Hill Bobby Portis and Grayson Allen were all on the floor together and the Celtics didn't have their best player and so even if you had run us even if you wanted to do the tactical genius or whatever whatever they wanted to listen to me whatever you want to do it's hard to be viable defensively with those three players on the floor yeah and i do think Wes matthews is not a very good offensive player at this point but he can make an open three although he was over three in this game as all the bucks were but yeah i thought i felt consistently that they didn't play him enough as i thought they didn't play him enough in the last series loss that they had back in 2020 when he was actually on on this team and was the only guy they had that could remotely slow down Jimmy Butler. But I mean, ultimately, much more so than coaching, it's just due to who is available. And the biggest part of that was Middleton not being available. And the second biggest part was just they didn't have enough viable players in a series against a Celtics team that just has so few weaknesses in the end. And Jason Tatum had another great superstar performance, I thought, in this one, particularly in the first half, even if he did have a bunch of turnovers. But he, he had a bunch of assists as well. And yeah, really good Celtics team. I mean, they, to me, are probably probably the favorite now i would say to win the nba championship and i think i'll just throw this up right now we'll just do a, a separate pod on dallas phoenix later and our next game on playback will be west finals game one on tuesday no i'm sorry east finals, east finals game one game on one. tuesday so we'll talk to you all then and the link to that is in the show notes wow i certainly never thought that we would be turning that game off from our cast in the third quarter i certainly never thought as well i guess jason kidd said it best he said a lot of people said this would be a blowout well they were right (laughs) (laughs) and i mean to me danny i posed this on twitter to wanted to crowdsource it to me this is the most surprising individual game result that i can ever remember in the nba i can't remember one that surprised me more from just my expectations pre-game versus what actually happened in the game i was thinking about it a lot and there were two others that came to mind one with the same pre-game expectations and then another in-game so pre-game it's 
another one from you know my knowledge of historical stuff is different than of course than yours was in 2017 when yeah Kawhi and tony parker were ruled out the rockets looked like they were going to force a game seven and not only did they lose they got whooped too like that was a thorough ass kicking and that yeah, was just got- was two for 11 and you know he had been like mr high usage that year and jonathan simmons was kicking their ass and stuff like i mean that was that would probably have been the one that would have come to mind yeah before that so so that was one and then the other one for me which was not the same in terms of pregame expectations or anything like that was more recent vintage actually when the clippers went up 12 on the nuggets in game five of that series so they're up 3-1 in the series they had just dispatched the mavericks they go up 12 and then basically just get worked the rest of that game and then i mean you could say the other games after that but it just seemed like one of those situations where especially because the clippers that outplayed them if memory serves it was a very low possession game and denver flipped the switch and never looked back and those are the two where i was like where i was felt and this one wasn't as much what makes it different than the the houston game in particular is i was less confident in the suns going in it is how far the mavericks swung the pendulum the other way and they did that for me that started on the defensive end oh yeah they they just to finish up on this that that thread though real quick i mean this is the most surprising like even that game six rocket spurs and number one the spurs were favored by most people probably in that series uh they had home court i think i actually picked the rockets in that series but so and it if the spurs had lost it wouldn't have ended the series i mean this was this team was favored by a lot you know coming into the series and then even at home i don't know what the line is and then you consider just home game sevens and just to like completely not show up in any way was remarkable and then even that clippers denver series you know in game obviously when you're down and stuff like we've seen comebacks that are shocking but that clippers denver series game five is like okay whatever three two they just lost one game six maybe that was really surprising because like okay the clippers are gonna take care of it but then by game seven there had been a trend you're like okay well when it happened in game seven you're like well it can't be that surprising it just happened in game five and game six (laughs) so this was just so and i mean the mavs hadn't even competed in games in phoenix in this series and then as you were starting to allude to there the reason they hadn't competed was their defensive effort and execution they had done that in dallas and they brought it with them tonight there are plenty of statistics that you can throw out there i mean whether you want to start with phoenix having a 10 point quarter and a 27 point first half which was the 11th lowest total in nba playoff history when and when you consider the generally high offense era that we are in and many of those games i think four of them occurred in the 1950s which is different let's call it that way or yes Phoenix having in cleaning the glass with their garbage time filter, which is, of course, insufficient in a thorough ass kicking like this. First shot offensive rating, 68. 0.4 and overall a 98.9 and that you know that that includes a lot of semi garbage of course and you mean the second half I, I mean i think we could do it through three quarters it was it was pretty sure. over at that point it, it was pretty over at that point it's just yeah, yeah. to clean the glass stats are harder to pull for that juncture and dallas was flying around they were deflecting a ton of passes they weren't conceding really anything 
And that was what was so st- surprising to us. Like we were talking as we we're getting back to the second half of like, what can Phoenix do to change to st- change the tide? And it's like this wasn't a circumstance like the first game where one team is missing all of their threes or there's an obvious personnel fix. They were just getting beat. Yeah, they were. And as we just before we get into kind of the X's and O's of it, just the overall carnage in, in terms of just how crazy this game was. Neither Chris Paul nor Devin Booker registered a field goal until the Phoenix Suns were down by 40 points. Unreal. And in the first half, Aiton, Booker, and Paul combined for one field goal which was a DeAndre Ayton dunk about 30 seconds before he got his third foul and was out of the game. And Monty Williams said after the game, he was asked why DeAndre Ayton only played 17 minutes. And he said, it's internal. I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure he meant internal as in like internal to the team. And he wouldn't discuss it as opposed to internal to DeAndre Ayton. But then Devin Booker was asked, basically given a chance to give an endorsement like oh i really want deandre ayton back this year and he basically said his contract is between him and the front office and i I care about him as a person and you know i hope it's okay and basically you got to be ready to play which it could have just been the fatigue of answering questions but it's also the question was phrased to give him a chance to say hey i really want it back and that chance was not taken um let's see what else here did you give the stat of this is the largest road blowout in a game seven since the warriors over the st louis bombers in 1948 which that almost that stat almost makes it crazier than if it was the largest (laughs) that (laughs) you have to go back to the st louis bombers to see something like this I, yeah, I mean, and so this that was in '48. I think that was that was the BAA. I'm not even because that was even before they merged with the NBL. By the way, yeah, the, say, what, by the way, the St. Louis the St. Louis Bombers became the St. Louis Hawks, then became the Atlanta Hawks. For those that are, I believe that's okay. true. They, no, yeah. they're not the same team. They became the St. Louis Hawks, and I am. It is unclear what happened at did that. They, ch- did they fold and then the St. Louis Hawks like started up again? Might have, <laughs> might have been. I, I'm, I'm not. We're recording a podcast. Is that a Charles Lindbergh reference <laughs> to the St. Louis Bombers? It, it, it might be. I guess the and, spirits of St. Louis was a Charles Lindbergh reference. Uh, and, and so, so I mean, to me, it all started for Dallas on the defensive end and yeah. we talked about yeah, how let's, great, let's how, get back to that how, yeah. how great their their execution was and they did everything but then what made this a demolition was dallas's success on the offensive end luca was sublime 35 points 12 of 19 from the field 27 points in the first half equaling the phoenix suns he was attacking mismatches did a lot against deandre Ayton on on switches he also was aware as he was in games game six in particular of when Ayton was out on the floor and attacked more aggressively in those minutes so he he was absolutely incredible yeah and to have tied the sun's point total in the first half he was outscoring them after he hit a three 30 to 29 early in the third he came out scored the first eight points all of them on ridiculously difficult shots he at one point posted up deandre ayton in the lane and hit a fadeaway over him on a switch the Suns' strategy as they came out, I actually thought like their defense wasn't that bad, particularly considering how poorly they were scoring. It, it was a slow-paced game, but until maybe the last three minutes of the quarter when they tried to go small when Aiton got his third foul, their defense wasn't that bad. Like I think the switching was working okay. Luka was hitting really tough shots, and but early on he was hitting the step back. Like, he wasn't necessarily getting into the lane. Dallas was taking a ton of threes, but not getting much at the rim. 
And then Dallas, I thought, did some really nice stuff where they first would get the center, either Biombo or Eaton, switched on to Luka. And then, rather than have Luka go one-on-one against that guy, which he did some, and he beat Aiton, but... He also would then bring Chris Paul up to set the screen with the center already on Luka with the someone who usually was Balak guarding or that Chris Paul was guarding. And so now you've got the center on one of your best shooters right after the screen is over. I think they should have trapped Luka at that point. They finally went to that like, you know, two thirds of the way through the third quarter. By that point, it was all over. So then Luka was able to attack Chris Paul downhill and with the Suns rim protector already on the perimeter, having just switched off of Luka. I thought that was pretty brilliant. They got good stuff out of that. And then Spencer Dinwiddie went exactly. crazy as well. Luca comes out at the start of the, you know, he he sits as as is often the yeah. case at the end of twenty seven seventeen at the end of the first. Yeah, twenty seven seventeen. Like, okay, this is Phoenix's chance to make a run. Luca's on the bench, and Spencer Dinwiddie goes off. He scores. 13 points in the second quarter alone and he had been on the floor for the end of the first quarter so he you know we talked about how Luca had the same amount of points as the Suns Dinwiddie was only six behind at 21 at that juncture he was seven to ten from the field was drilling threes with confidence had some really nice drives as well and again like somebody who understood what the Suns were going to throw at him who took some of the shots that he made were very well contested were very tough and I I I don't have enough praise for Spencer Dinwiddie on how he played this game. Yeah, and against the switches too, he had a couple of blow-bys in a way against like Biombo where Luca wasn't going to just like straight line blow-by him, whereas Dinwiddie going to his right, did he hit some ridiculous step-backs going to his right also? And I thought Kidd also, again, hit the right buttons here. Jalen Brunson had been a huge stalwart for them rather than either put Brunson back in, he was actually only one of seven in the first half, or go to the three-guard group, which would have potentially compromised the defense. He just played Dinwiddie over Brunson, and it worked out great. And then Brunson went crazy in the third quarter. If there was ever any doubt, they push it to 42 by the end of the third quarter. As well, I think they scored the first... Who knows how many points it was. What did that run end up being in the end when the Suns were on five points from nine minutes left in the second until when? At one point, I think it was 37 to five over like an entire quarter, basically. 41-25 when Aiton made Aiton made a dunk. Well, no, it was it was like 34. Like they were stuck on 22 like forever, weren't they? That's where it started when they got 22. Yeah, so Tory Craig, who was in the rotation for some reason, like uh, William expanded his rotation a little bit i think they wanted to get like more effort in it oh yeah 9 30 yeah okay yeah so 9 36 left tory craig makes it makes a two what was the run after that 36 to 5 jesus and that was 36 that, to 5 over basically an entire quarter yeah yeah i mean it really it, like the sun's defense while they were while the game was remotely competitive i thought was not terrible it was good enough like i said for the first like 21 minutes or so of the game but i mean the offense was just so bad and the Dallas defense, some of the st- the tactical things they were doing, putting two on the ball on Devin Booker. Booker was asked about that after the game. He said, asked basically why he didn't like try getting more aggressive in scoring. He said, I was trying to trust my teammates. They were putting two on the ball on most of his picks at least uh, when he was doing some of that off-ball stuff, uh, on-ball they were doing some such. I mean, maybe the Suns, you'd argue, should have just done more high pick and roll and more setting screens up near half court. So if they're going to put two on the ball, then the rotations would have been further away because the, like, the Mavs rotations out of those double teams were unbelievable. Like they weren't getting those like quick duck-ins at the rim or offensive rebounds. Like they tried McGee for a little bit. That didn't really work. 
they were scrambling out to shooters incredibly well like these guys it would be a double team they'd kick it to a shooter and the guy would somehow just have someone in his lap like the Mavs are just so well connected again it wasn't anything that's like we've been saying this since January 1st of like how is it that they're so good like I don't understand like their personnel is like pretty good but like not guys that at least coming into the season you thought were unbelievable and they don't do anything that's like that special schematically most of the time so like how are they it's just they don't ever fuck up they don't ever take a playoff they make everything really difficult every catch deandre ayton tries to dribble across the lane for a dribble handoff and he's like being bothered on that even and he just like slightly disrupting the time of the play the sun's team is just so clinical and always seemed in control especially in these crazy crunch times of which there were zero in the series in the end and yet that was all out the window by the end of the series and i mean they just had one of the worst offensive games in nba playoff history had a pretty bad time but the mavericks i mean how about like obviously the suns just like blew some shots but like how many points would you say they that was worth as opposed to just having to take tough shots compared to what the mavericks were taking more tough shots than blown shots maybe like i don't know 10 15 points overall but lost the game by 40 yeah i mean yeah they were down by 30 at half and i mean they probably missed what was their shot chart in the first half they it was some just pathetic shooting in the paint wasn't it 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 was yeah they were five of 21 in the paint in the first half yeah well i guess we can chalk up the whole sun's mid-range god bet that we made or not really a bet but (laughs) uh, we were gonna track it after game two remember they're shooting 60 percent from on long twos and I predicted 51%. You predicted 47 I mean, they we'll look it up later, I'm sure. But they were they were not good. They 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 only took six mid rangers in this entire game. Yeah, for but they took a ton of floaters, and they were just terrible on them right. in, in that first half. And and over, oh yeah, overall five of twenty from floater range, zero for nine in the first half. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, th- and they were making their living from there, maybe arguably even more than on true mid-rangers outside the paint. And Aiton, I mean, Aiton was just missing a lot of shots he would normally make. I mean, Aiton, Paul, those two guys had kind of this preternatural ability to score for mid-range and just that completely evaporated over the last five games of the series. Um, for Chris Paul, he was asked repeatedly in the post-game presser about whether he was dealing with an injury. Mark Spears finally reported a source said that Paul was dealing with a left quad injury. Paul again was asked about it by Spears as he was heading the tunnel, declined comment. So good, good as CJ Paul to give that one to Spears. But of course, well, we should Paul, we should do the Law Murray stats on this. I mean, this is something that we've been interested in this whole time. Chris Paul yeah. played eight games in the postseason before he turned 37. In those games, the Suns won six and two. He made 69 shots and turned the ball over 13 times. In the five games after his birthday, Suns lost four of five, 18 made shots, 18 turnovers. And 18 made shots in five games. Wow. Less than four field goals per game for Chris Paul after he was just so unbelievable. And you would think there had to be something different. But let's also just give credit to the Mavs here. Yes. And not only, I have through their defense, but also, and we kind of saw this in the Celtics Bucks too. Last year's playoffs were weird. There were just so many injuries. It was tough to take a lot away from it. And we kind of thought, hey, you know what? Maybe now Cleveland and the Warriors and then that incredible Raptors team played great defense, a ton of defensive versatility. Cleveland was five out and just so difficult to deal with on offense. Really, the only way you could deal with them was switching. 
And last year it was like, okay, maybe the Bucks still did a lot of switching. That was pretty key to do that down the end with the group that they had last year. But one of the big tenets that we've had really since we started doing this and since the Warriors started the run and even going back to the Heat is if you can go five out and you can defend with versatility, not necessarily switching every time, but you've got enough, but switching has to be part of your capability. And the Mavs definitely have that with Maxi Klebo, one of the most underrated players in the NBA. But both of these, the ability to go five out, both Boston, Milwaukee, and this one, go five out and then defend with versatility on the other end. And of course, you need star power there as well. I mean, even last year, the Clippers, without a lot of star power, were able to beat the Jazz, who could not defend with versatility either. And we wondered, well, you know, Phoenix is the team maybe that can beat that, right? Like they've got these centers on the switches. They can duck in. They can get the ball inside. They got this great passing. They got this great system. They're clinical. Teams haven't really had a ton of success switching against them. Um, and then uh, on defense, well, DeAndre Ayton, like he's he's got some pretty good defensive versatility. Like maybe he can switch or maybe he can play a conventional style with his mobility. No, no. Even, even the Suns, who are probably as good as you could make, I would say, a quote-unquote conventional team on both ends. And they tried switching. Even like they got forced into it. They had to go to Biombo, who you know was a midseason pickup. Like they, it was amazing to see how desperate they got. And it, perhaps that was kind of lost on us going into this game seven of how far outside their normal comfort zone the Suns had been pushed because the same thing campaign who they really needed on as a backup point guard with his offense they had just had to be taken off the floor because of what the the Dallas Mavericks were doing and that wasn't even Luca it was Brunson and Dinwiddie who were killing him so it's it's all the Suns are about as good as you can build a conventional team and they couldn't get it done against this Dallas team that yes is very talented and well coached but also I mean the Suns have more talent than the Dallas Mavericks like I think that's I, I, you know, maybe and, Bridges and, and, is and on that, or something. On that know, front, we talked about the combined made shots for the Suns' best players in the first half. I think it's worth focusing also on the attempted shots because that's a part of what the Mavericks were doing Big so time. well. Big time. In that first half, Phoenix took 41 attempts from the field. Only 15 of those 41 attempts were their top three players, Paul, Booker, and Aiden. If you want to do it by comparison for the Mavericks, let's say their three best offensive players are Brunson, Luka, and Spencer Dinwiddie, which I think is fair. Those guys had 29 of their 40. The Mavericks, through their system, through their execution, yeah. and, were... And everything else is either a dunk or a wide open three, by the way. Like, that was Correct. the other thing. Like, the, they were forcing Mikhail Bridges and Jay Crowder, like, inside the arc are, like, 14-foot floaters. Right, and they didn't, you know, they didn't have Jay, Jay Crowder having that, but the difference in shots that, like, Jay Crowder was getting versus Bullock and, and Dorian Finney-Smith, it was striking. And I don't want to do the Suns postseason preview right now. I think that Monty Williams' quotes on that and Devin Booker's, as you mentioned earlier in the, in the podcast, are, are significant. And how much this loss lingers with them versus everything else that happens versus other teams having interest in DeAndre Ayton, like it and Chris Paul being 37 years old, like it, it and Robert Sarver presume, I mean the owner, at least for now, but probably I would say for, for longer, it's so hard to get an owner removed. Can, can the report come out now, by the way, is that okay? Sun season is over. Hey, Suns, Suns could probably actually, <laughs> that, that might be positive PR for the Suns at this point after this loss. Drop it immediately, like a, a couple hours before the lottery. <laughs> yeah. so then, then it gets just knocked out. Out, and then lottery and game one of of heat celtics that would be pretty appropriate timing that are a friday afternoon but for phoenix like 
I, I am always interested. It's, it's something you and I have discussed, but it's also something I talk about a fair amount on Real GM Radio when opportunity presents itself, is it's not always about the rational reaction. It's also about the emotional reaction. And the Suns have major decisions to make, and they have bridges lined up, and Chris Paul is still under contract and Devin Booker, but what they do with Aiton, their willingness to pay the luxury tax, their appetite for committing to this group long term, those could shift on this. I don't think they should too much like if it were, if they were listening to my advice it would be don't overreact to this especially considering their window even if you're like optimistic their window is narrow like it might be next year and then it's going to get tough and because how do they replace chris paul and everything else unless james jones it's another couple picks out of the park and they're yeah, not going to they do have else. all of their picks in the future other than this year's which is number 30 going to okc from the cp trade right i don't know how it's going to shake out this definitely makes makes it more compelling and I don't know what James Jones is thinking now. I don't know how much latitude he has, but you don't usually see teams this good get knocked out this way. And I mean, I I want to just emphasize this. The Suns in the regular season led the league, not only a 64 and 18 record, cleaning the glass net rating of plus 8.5, which was best in the league, by more than a point per 100 possessions, while dealing yeah. with plenty of injuries. This was not a circumstance where the Suns were the only healthy team and everyone else got sidetracked and everything else like Devin Booker missed extended time Chris Paul missed time and they had role players just like seemingly everybody else did in this top seats every year they were the best team in the league in the regular season and they got trounced in a home game game seven yeah Kevin Harlan said this on the broadcast late I think he got it wrong though he said that this is only the second team to win 64 or more games to lose before the conference finals that's incorrect because both the Mavs in 2007 at least off the top of my head and the 2016 Spurs who won 67 didn't make it there are a bunch of other teams that made 60 that won 63 that didn't make it to the conference finals over the years so that that is somewhat cherry picking but 64 is rarer than 63 worth noting too that the Suns were this amazing clutch team they never had a chance as it turns out in any of their playoff losses to even get to clutch time which is crazy to think about to allow that to take place but the Mavs were the second best clutch team when they started this January 1st run anyway but this team was had was in terms of their overall quality was more like a high 50s win team than a 60 win team you did mention the injuries which is true and worth keeping track of but yeah I mean what to take away from this will be something we have to talk about more in their offseason last well, point before yeah go ahead sorry also there have only been as i'm looking at a basketball reference there have only been 25 teams that have won 64 or more games in a regular in an nba season like that's yeah. not that many no so last thing i want to say before we turn to the mavs and warriors western conference finals dallas and boston are both in the conference finals both teams that were basically 500 around january 1st and luca came in out of shape and he was terrible and everyone was like they're taking too many mid-rangers and porzingis uh pretty damn good trade i guess we'll have more time to talk uh, about that this may not be the apex of the Mavs season by any means but these are both teams and like Dallas like man what the hell can they do like the Porzingis isn't working out the trade of Porzingis it seemed like it was just giving up to just get some more movable contracts with Dinwiddie and Bertans 
And really what that was leaning into, maybe even more than moving on from Porzingis, was leaning into Moxie Kleba and playing him at center and being switchable. And Dwight Powell to a smaller degree, but Powell was starting and playing, you know, less than 20 minutes a game. So that was, it was almost really a bet on Moxie Kleba as well to make that. And he, again, remains one of the most underrated players in the NBA. And Boston, it was like, well, they they are totally screwed. Should they break up Jalen and Jason? And they had all these picks. They made a few conference finals. They never truly threatened for an NBA title. And uh, this may be the new era of the NBA right now. Where and maybe this is part of why ratings are up. Is shit's kind of unpredictable at this point, both well, at the start of the season and in season and in playoff series. A couple other elements that will add to the unpredictability are just kind of the different feel of these playoffs. The top four vote getters and MVP are all out of the playoffs. The top so and then as you and I did our, you know, top ten mm. players in the league, which would be modified by, you know, potentially by some of the events that we've seen, the only three of my top ten are still in the playoffs. My number four, my number five, Luca and Steph, and then my number ten, Jason Tatum. Yeah, and I had Luca four and Steph five and Tatum number nine. Yeah, that's crazy. Giannis out, KD out. This is so yeah, I mean there really was not a super team this year once the the nets imploded and so really any anything can happen and we are going to have now our fifth different champion in five seasons unless the warriors win but even that would be that would be a considering they're out of the playoffs for two straight years like that would be viewed as somewhat of an upset as well no one had the warriors or the mavs making the conference finals and definitely didn't have the celtics and Miami, like maybe, you know, they I mean, were definitely I, I viewed picked, as like I a, Miami's under, even though I thought they'd be a good playoff team. Right. I mean, they were viewed as like a distant third in the East behind the Bucks and the Nets. So yeah, this is this is fun. I, I, our predictions are terrible, <laughs> but it, it makes us well, a, they, a lot more interesting. They, they are a lot more in to learn. ways, and they are not. Yeah. I mean, I think I've got I got one series wrong in each of the first two rounds, and I think you did as well. And you know what's funny about that? Oh no, got two. The the Raptors the Raptors losing to the Sixers. So two wrong yeah. in the first round and then one in the second so last thing before last last thing before the preview oh wait i have one more too okay well you, I'll, why you I'll do first? mine uh one of the other stats from this game luca and spencer dinwiddie became the first pair of teammates with 30 or more points in a game seven since Shaq and kobe in the o2 conference finals yeah against the kings game seven on the road so i'll leave you with this from jason kidd he was asked if this win means the mavs have arrived and he said i mean we play the games as scheduled so i guess we've arrived <laughs> it's just great uh, he he and you Doka have had some amazing lines in these playoffs. All right, let's talk about this Warriors Mavs series. And my initial thought is Warriors just don't have enough ways to deal with Luka. If they had Iguodala and Peyton healthy, I would kind of view this as maybe a toss up. But because they probably aren't going to, like Peyton, they were saying, oh, maybe he could come back. But he's also, he'll, if he does come back, he won't be able to shoot any three pointers, I'm sure, with that busted elbow, which he's kind of a made shooter, not a born shooter. And that it always kind of seemed unsustainable what he was doing anyway. So with a broken elbow, I'm not anticipating he'll necessarily be able to survive on offense that well although he, he does play inside a lot too so i i think it's advantage dallas is my initial thought but i want to talk through it with you before i make an, an official pick let's start with the mavericks on offense that's kind yeah. of where you were leading beforehand yeah. and the goal because i want to see whether my initial thought is like the warriors might be a little fucked here like is that your initial thought i think that the warriors do not have a ton of players who can defend luca one-on-one but my bigger concern if i were steve kern's 
coaching staff, by the way, Kerr has cleared protocols. He's back with the Warriors, is how many different matchups you want to avoid. Because it's not as much about Steph Curry as much to me as it is about Jordan Poole, where that... Well, it's, about, it's about Steph Curry, too, though. Like sure. it, it, We saw that but, in but the regular season when these guys they matched were, up. They were pretty Luka, aggressive in that respect. Yeah. And Yeah, Luka just is, went through Steph at the end of the Mavs win yeah. in, and, in Dallas. And on those lines, the Warriors don't have enough capable defenders to typically have a second good person to handle Jalen Brunson and or Spencer Dinwiddie where they they can you know Andrew Wiggins I think will do a solid enough job on Luka in base alignments but how often does he how often is he actually the primary cover because if they do screens and everything else and there's going to be another there's going to be another advantage and with Gary Payton out with Andre Iguodala presumably out there aren't other guys that they can get into the mix. And I do think that this is a series in certain situations, especially at the beginning of games, where Kavon Looney will have more of a place to be. And Luka will cook him some time. That is very likely, if not definite. However, that would help the Warriors' defensive rebounding. It would create some problems for them offensively. But then when they go with Moxie Kleba, are you willing to sacrifice those open shots? And what are you actually taking away? So how often how often are the Warriors going to use somebody like Kevon Looney and they don't have that many other good defenders I think if I'm Golden State I they may just have to lean into the offense in this series now they they'll surprise me because they do like Looney Draymond like those guys can be pretty good Wiggins is solid Steph is a smart help defender but at least they can only go after one guy at a time <laughs> right like if you leave if you're like okay we're gonna leave only one liability on the floor it's like they're gonna go after that guy every time now maybe i think the warriors what they can do is i think they're gonna make bullock and finney smith make plays out of pick and pop a, a little bit more um those guys might just be able to hit shots but at least make them shoot those on the move rather than as spot ups if they're going to bring pool into the action if they're going to bring Steph into the action i think we'll see more two on the ball than what the suns did and that then maybe the Warriors can fly around a little bit more. I think, unlike you, I, I think Looney is probably going to only end up being able to really play in this series when Dwight Powell is on the floor. And I think I would start him if I'm Golden State for that reason. And just try, I might even just, they're not going to do this at the beginning, but I would try to just match him up with Dwight Powell's minutes just about exclusively and rejig your rotation because they just they're not going to have to play. And then when Luca's on the bench, I think no, I don't think so because they're going to go. They'll go. They go five out for every minute that Luca's on the bench, which again is more of their great coaching to just recognize that when we have our best player on the bench, we got to space the floor. Like I I don't think it's going to work. I mean, maybe they feel like Looney can help and get out there, but I I I, I, Looney definitely can't guard Luca on a switch, so they'll play conventional pick and roll defense. I'm sure. I don't think they would do like Draymond on Luca. Because Looney is, he's just too slow. He's not the same guy that he was a couple of years ago who could actually stay in front of guards on switches. Like, he just can't do that anymore. So, I think this is going to be a series in which Jonathan Kaminga is actually going to have to play. Uh, I think it's just going to be a small series overall. Like, Powell might even not play at all. Or or if he does, like, they, we might see a lot of minutes with, like, Finney Smith at center as well for Golden State. Uh, you know, like you said, Poole is going to just get totally attacked. And, and can he, because he gets really tired too a lot of times, like, after he'll go on these attacks he'll just be exhausted kind of like Kyrie used to be years ago 
when he would go into these dribbling exhibitions. So can he, because he, he's drawing dead guarding any of the Mavs three guards. So you clearly, I think, have to just put two on the ball with him. But then can he execute that coverage and sprint back to his guy well enough? Can they keep those guys out of the action a little bit better than Phoenix did? Eh, maybe they can. Um, but I just, I think ultimately they just don't, aren't going to have an answer for Luca. Like Luca's almost always scored well against these guys. I think maybe the difference, well, so, so what else do we have to say about the, the Mavs offense versus the Warriors defense? Luca's preference for doing high pick and roll with the the biggest player on the floor i think that could give the warriors some opportunities because even though i don't think draymond is going to be perfect he is their best other opportunity so you to me you put draymond on kleba powell and that that also runs against the idea of kevon looney being on the floor by the way and pray for the best and hope that and wiggins i think actually can do a decent job you know if you end up switching those actions at bare minimum how much will luca and jason kidd go after that and then the other one and you could say well this doesn't this is more of a a, a def- an offense thing or however you want to do it is dallas doesn't push the ball too hard in transition the warriors transition defense has generally been pretty bad and they can attack the offensive glass with a little bit more impunity but also dallas they can do well in transition it's just not something they do all the time yeah, that's an interesting point. Uh, both transition where the Warriors should, in theory, have the advantage. And they Draymond Green, in particular, on like grab and goes, needs to push it at every opportunity. Like they need the Draymond Green from Game 6 in that Memphis series who was pushing it and getting them transition when their half-court offense was terrible. The boards, I think, are actually going to be massive in this game. And it's weird to say that because I think this is going to be a very small series. Like It's going to be Draymond and Kleba, and that's probably it during most of these lineups as your traditional bigs on the floor but finney smith loves to run in from the corner to get offensive rebounds wiggins can do the same thing there's going to be a bunch of switches and so can guys keep guys off the boards you know not having some of these guys for golden state is going to be different. like peyton probably would actually gotten a bunch of offensive rebounds in this series but wiggins if kaminga plays on the offensive glass like i think there are going to be games that are going to be swung by just these long rebounds loose ball rebounds those sorts of plays that and i think golden state should have a little bit of an advantage there given what they've been able to do to both denver and to memphis where they've just got all their big guys out on the floor and everything's scrambling around and there's two on the ball and guys can kind of sneak in a little bit so that should be a slight advantage for golden state and it's also a transition an adjustment for the warriors because memphis especially on the big line is so athletic and dallas does it a little bit differently and i think there will be a a slight reprieve that is balanced by so many other things that dallas does well that the other teams did not yeah so last thing on the warriors defense and this is their rotation in the last game against memphis Otto porter was out i also think Otto porter he can provide some help defense and rebounding but if he gets stuck on any of the guards he's going to get roasted defending in space was a problem for Otto porter so they played jordan Poole can't guard anyone or at least can't guard those guys on the Mavericks they played Nemanja Bialica a little bit probably not a good idea they played Damian Lee Lee actually will try I think he could execute pretty well if they're doing some sort of a hedging or something but if he gets stuck on Luka it's a problem might be able to do a little bit better on Dinwiddie or Brunson not sure probably not though uh Steph Curry I think he can do okay on Brunson and on Dinwiddie but if it's isolation after isolation after isolation like he's not that quick and it's just can they get some help on these guys without giving up wide open threes no one's been able to do that yet 
it's so easy for us particularly brunson to just work into the lane work in the lane like if you're just basically playing one-on-one okay now i can fake oh like brunson is so so shifty that if there's never any help coming and he can just he all right maybe his first second or third move won't beat you but if he gets to make six moves one of them's gonna work eventually right so they need to figure out a way to get that out of rhythm Maybe there'll be some doubles. Maybe there'll be some zone. I might seriously consider actually going zone with Luka off the floor. And Draymond Green, if Golden State can slow down Dallas, Draymond Green is going to have to have the series of his life. And I'm not even sure, honestly, that he can guard Luka Doncic on a switch anymore. Like he's The few times he's guarded him these last two years, he hasn't had a ton of success. One of those... I remember it was in 2021 that that was the night that I asked Rick Carlisle about his team having a 175 offensive rating in the first half and should he have called more post-ups for Porzingis Draymond wasn't really trying that year but I don't really think that even Draymond at this point in his career we haven't seen him do much switching on the perimeter and I think part of that is because they want to play differently but part of it is that he's not as good as he used to be so maybe you know three four years ago Draymond could have guarded Luca. I'm not even sure he can both teams are going to get up a ton of threes like that variance is going to be huge in this series like the, you're not going to see Dallas having this advantage in terms of the analytics. I don't think um, the Warriors three pointers they don't get their three pointers the way most teams do, and it's going to be more difficult to keep them from getting up threes. That's what Dallas's defense is built on. Phoenix doesn't even really want to take that many threes. It took them a couple of games to kind of reorient their defense away from that. They were able to stop the Jazz from getting up threes and. Can Dallas do that and then also not give up a bunch of layups as well is going to be interesting to see for sure. And Draymond's going to have to have a really good offensive series as well, whether it's screening guys open, whether it's working the split cuts, getting guys back door, fake DHOs and drives. Like Draymond should be able to have an okay series here because there's really only one rim protector that you're that scared of on the Mavs and that's Kleba. And I think what the Warriors should be doing a lot of as we shift to their offensive end is trying to get Kleba out on the floor on switches or maybe the Mavs will put two on the ball. Jason Kidd did used to do that back with the Bucs and he's got these guys rotating way better than those Bucks ever did. But if they're switching, get Kleba out on the floor and then try to go on the attack. Like the Warriors are going to get up to me enough threes and the Mavs also are going to shoot enough threes where the Warriors will certainly to me be able to win games in this series just by winning the three-point battle uh, in certain games. Like that's just going to happen because both these teams are getting up enough threes and there's that variance. The question to me is just whether the Warriors offense is going to be able to make up for Luka Doncic plus five out and that just, man, that is And And we'll see how the Warriors do on twos compared to, I mean, we saw at the end of this series against the suns phoenix yeah. great mid-range team and whether they can get whether the warriors can get stuff around the basket whether they could create advantages but then what are the other huge problems for golden state we saw dallas defend the warriors very well during the regular season is that there's there are some turnovers that it seems like are very difficult if not impossible for fa- functionally for them to iron out and that gives Dallas potentially a margin for error in some of these games. You talked about the three-point variance, but if the if Dallas is plus five, plus six in turnovers, then and if they could get something in transition on a portion of those, that that makes life a lot harder for the Warriors. And 
Also, the Mavericks are playing a lot of very strong defenders on the floor at any one point. And we've seen Luka's effort vacillate a lot in these playoffs. I mean, that was a key swing point during the early Suns, the early Suns home games in the series. But Finney Smith and Reggie Bullock and Moxie Kleba in particular, they, there could be some Frank Nilekina in this series as well. Those guys will cause problems. And the Warriors don't have, A, they don't have a ton of diversity in terms of their attack. Like they don't, they, they, there aren't that many players who can really create they do more of that through the system. So that's one one component of it. So, And then the second component is that historically, the Warriors have not been particularly aggressive attacking mismatches, and there aren't that many mismatches to attack with the Mavericks, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that the Warriors are going to have more success than the Jazz had and more success than Phoenix had over the last five games of this series. That just because of the amount of spacing that they could put on the floor, there is going to be, and just the off-ball movement, component for threes as well that they just like you just have to be aware of either by switching or getting through screens it's just a different type of defense that the Mavs are going to have to play and if they are especially if they are like super trying to take away the three-point line that should open some stuff up for Golden State against a team that only really has the one great rim protector in Kleba and he's going to be out on the floor a lot um I think also in terms of taking advantage of Luka whether it's transition forcing miscommunications quick hitting attacks that they can go after Luka more and the change in the geometry where Phoenix most of their guys trying to attack Luka they want to do it inside the arc and so he can kind of play the angles a little bit he can back up all right give you I'll or just kind of force you into help a little bit more if he's defending out on the floor 30 feet from the basket that's a, a different animal and he he will probably be too slow I would say to stay in front of Steph Curry or even Jordan Poole out there Poole is way faster getting to the basket in a straight line than any of these Suns guys, particularly off a quick switch. And, and Clay isn't going to do that much on the ball, but there's just generally more of a pace to the Warriors, more of an improvisational aspect, whereas Utah and particularly Phoenix were more station to station, less fast break, great executing, but they could kind of be taken out of it a little bit. Whereas it's just the Warriors don't give you as many chances to just, oh, I'm going to body the shit out of you here because I know you're going to this dribble handoff over here and we're going to disrupt your timing. They can be physical with them, sure, but it's just not quite as as obvious and the Mavs also I think the turnover game obviously is going to be massive that's the other thing the Mavs don't force turnovers as well as the Grizzlies do but they force them in their good moments and they have pretty good pressure it's just I'm interested to see if changing where the Mavs have to defend and how they have to defend is going to make things different like I, I think there is going to be a time and also Warriors will have a little bit of a rest advantage they'll only two days so that's not huge I think the, the Mavs might have a little bit of a learning curve in this series as they did in the Phoenix series going up against them rather than Utah which was a different kind of team to try to play yeah I, I think that's all fair and Dallas league's sixth best defense defense since January 1st. I don't know if that's the delineation point for them, but they weren't as, you know, their overall sample, they weren't as great at forcing turnovers. However, the Warriors, they give you unforced turnovers too. And that that will swing at least one, but I think more likely two games in this series. But I think the, the biggest swing factors for me in this entire series are both Warriors on offense. And one of them is, can Jordan Poole really get going? Can he get downhill? Can he attack fast enough that the help isn't there? But the bigger one is Clayton. Thompson and his shot selection and can he create reliably good ones can he avoid taking bad ones because it has been 
under the radar might be saying it a little, a little bit too strongly, but like it has been a big factor in the Warriors series so far that he is not the same player offensively as he was before. He's very comfortable taking those tough shots and made more of them in that game six win over the Grizzlies than he has in most of the rest of the playoffs. Klay Thompson will probably have an advantageous matchup a modest amount of the time, just depending on how Jason Kidd wants to deploy his best defenders. But does he think every time Jalen Brunson is on him, it's an advantage matchup. And if he takes a turnaround two pointer, that's a great shot because they're not yeah sometimes they are when it's like just him and pool on the floor then maybe they have to take it and before we crap on clay i want to say he has returned and looked better than i thought he would agree in the end and he's actually we'll see how he looks on defense in this series this is going to stress him out a lot more but he the challenge that he has been faced with he has risen to it defensively in these first two rounds it's going to be obviously much different now uh but and he'll probably get some time on luca he's kind of I a think more he will. physical physical matchup we'll see if he can avoid fouling there like i think he actually can defend luca okay in an iso but we'll see how much luca even tries to iso him the luca didn't try to iso mikhail bridges very much in the last round and how many guys do the Warriors have that can navigate screens yeah. really well defensively? I mean, to me, though, it's even. I have an even bigger question, even bigger than Poole and even bigger than Clay. I think those guys, they'll have their good games and they're going to have their bad games. But Steph Curry, to me, is actually the biggest question mark in this series. And maybe it's not the biggest question mark, but it's maybe the most important question. The reason I say it's not the biggest question mark is he just hasn't been that crazy three-point shooter since middle of December. Like, he hasn't shot over 40% on his crazy diet of threes that he normally takes the ball just hasn't gone in for him and i think he's actually done a pretty darn good job of making up for it by playmaking and getting to the rim more than he had but he needs to make like six threes a game in this series or at least have games where he's making six threes seven threes eight threes and just you see this sizzle reel of oh my god steph curry nine threes against the mavs hitting some ridiculous shots they hasn't been able to do that really very often like i think his high in threes was the six of four or sorry six of 17 that he had against the grizz and a bunch of those came late so if he's not going to be hitting 40 percent of threes on this high volume i don't think the warriors have enough to keep up with this dallas offense stephen curry so far in these playoffs 60 percent true shooting that is incredibly this is just how ridiculous Steph yeah. curry is that's below his career playoff average he's at 61 percent career but this is also the highest usage of his of his playoff career so yeah. far and that uh, you're getting into different samples they're playing a different defensive team this time right. he came but, off the bench so he was taking more shots they played against right. this bullshit nuggets defense as well he was, could just drive by Jokic for a layup pretty much anytime what are his three point stats for the playoffs so if you want to do it per 36 minutes well, he, so he's, he's ta- making 36% either way. But then if yeah. you because of the, some of the playing time stuff in the early part of the series, he's taking 11.6 per 36 minutes, which is actually tied for the most frequent. But when you're making 36% of them versus making over 40, which is what he did in his best years, then that's the it's the lowest make rate other than 2019 that he's had, like made threes per 36 minutes yeah. since this run started. Yeah, and he also re- bumped that up with the 17 in that last game right. against the Grizz it really hadn't been at that beforehand and and something else the Warriors have home court in this series and the Warriors have not lost a game at Chase Center these entire playoffs they have not played particularly well in all of these games at Chase Center including memorably game four and game six of the series against Memphis game four they didn't play well to the fourth quarter game six wherever you want to mark the delineation they were also sloppy in game five of the Nuggets series and they won all of those but Chase Center will be a home court advantage the Warriors play better at home than they do on the road just like damn near every team. 
Uh, and the crowd, when moments are good, they're doing well. But it is A, it is not Oracle. And B, they haven't had that kind of home road split like we saw from the Mavericks in the last series where they played so much better. Yeah, they got demolished in game five. But other than that, they played they played totally fine in games one and two in Memphis. I, I don't think the Warriors have that home road split. And I don't think that Dallas is going to have the road foibles that they did. I think that something they learned in this game seven is we can bring that intensity and the returns are incredible. Ready for predictions? Mavs in six. I have not picked the Dallas Mavericks in any series so far, which is pretty incredible yeah. to pick them. Although make- I surely would have picked them in had Doncic been healthy against the Jazz. Of course. Did you did you Suns in seven? I did Suns in six. Okay, yeah, I had Suns in seven. Yeah, yeah. I think if I if Iguodala and Peyton were healthy and they just had some more athleticism and defensive versatility, I would maybe have gone Warriors in seven. But I just think they have too few options, and I also respect this Dallas defense. Like they've been been really good and I, I maybe i'm done doubting this dallas defense as being pretty good this warriors offense is something different and you can make the argument maybe that the grizz were better equipped to guard them because of the forcing turnovers and having that one guy on dylan brooks dill brooks who's going to hound curry so i definitely think the warriors can win this series for sure because it's, they just it's have a very that it's a very close series i don't feel great about picking the mavericks here yeah i just think and, it's and the warriors like- have home court as well but yeah i think it's just Luca to me is the best player in the series by a pretty significant margin. I think the Mavs just have a little bit better of a system and a way of playing that's just too hard to stop when you have this many defensive liabilities as the Warriors do. And Draymond Green to me is still the best playoff defensive player, though he hasn't been as good to me as a help defender in these playoffs as you would have hoped, but he's been kind of more of a post-up guy. This is going to be a totally different series in that respect. So can Steph Curry pull one out one more time and match or exceed Luka Doncic? That's a possibility. Can Draymond Green, and this is going to be one of the hardest challenges that he personally, especially when you consider the guys around him, has ever faced. Going up against those LeBron Cavs teams, that was probably even harder, but at least he had Andre Guadalla and Kevin Durant and a Looney who could still move his feet back then and a clay thompson who was better than he is now around him and they could switch everything and feel pretty good about any matchup against someone like luca except for steph now there are just so many of these and then if they're going small too they don't have like the great help defense to make up for it and then still close out on guys as well so yeah i think i didn't go mavs and six as well oh one other one other factor in this that so kind of to game it out is that i i'm interested in how the passage you know the the time gap between game one how that affects both of these teams dallas will be more the Warriors will be more rested but dallas will be plenty rested and then uh, bob vagaris was talking about this and i agree it is really unfortunate with this series and the other that it's every other game the whole rest of the way my inclination is that helps the mavericks more than the warriors even though it could tire out luka just because the warriors are a an older collection of players and you know if, if and it also means that if there are any any injuries it makes it harder for player you know players are going to miss more time and everything else like that yeah in terms of injuries the mavs if anything really happens to any of these mavs top seven they could be in trouble i think and obviously the warriors are extremely thin now too the fact that the warriors are still around at this point given the injuries that they've had three of their top nine guys were out none of their top four but 
three of their top nine were out for the end of that Memphis series and obviously Memphis was quite injured as well but I do think like Golden State this is the last thing I want to say I mean Golden State looked like shit at the end of that Memphis series those last three games they'll definitely be ready for the Jones they will not be taking this Mavs team lightly they will not be taking Luka lightly at all I do think that the Warriors can look better offensively than they did against Memphis that was a bad matchup for them these playoff series can kind of just turn into a a weird spiral we've seen that where and that happened to the Suns where you just kind of lose yourself in what the matchup is and you over the course of these games you can start to question yourself and your your system and seven game series can just kind of mess with your head and getting a fresh start can really help guys I think that's going to help Golden State and maybe they can get back to having their offense look as good as it did in that series against the Nuggets it's just I think the Mavs are a little bit better of a two-way team and so much of this is going to be decided we haven't really mentioned like Dorian Finney-Smith and Reggie Bullock but like you know them going up against Andrew Wiggins and I guess Jonathan Kaminga like Jonathan Kaminga is going to have to play Danny like because he's one of the few guys who can actually switch on to Luka and maybe hold his own though he, you know who knows he could just get into foul trouble I still they may have to dust off Toscano Anderson even though I know they don't want to do that they don't think he's any good but they might need some versatility from him as well it's, this is going to be a crazy series I think in terms of just like how small and unconventional it is throughout the entire series this is going to be as modern NBA as it gets I will right, well, thanks so much for listening always a pleasure to have you on if you're listening on the free feed check us out on playback getplayback.com slash room slash nate duncan nba all of the non-warriors home games we are going to do live other than maybe a couple tbd next weekend and it's a really awesome portal you sign with your cable provider so it's all above board you can get the stream and our commentary over the stream all in the room basically like being on a zoom call they are limited to 400 people in the room at once right now because they're in beta we're we're pretty close to maxing that out over the first couple of days that we did this so conference finals are only going to get more interesting and more people will get on there so hopefully if you want to get in you can get into the room early they usually start it well actually i mean you can be in the room anytime if you want you could be in the room right now if if you wanted to lurk but uh obviously the stream and our commentary doesn't come on until right before the game so give that a shot link will be in the show notes and if you're not a dunktown prime subscriber i urge you to check that out as well monthly prices may be going up relatively soon but we will offer a deal shortly on yearly memberships so you can avoid that and i've rambled enough here we will talk to you probably tomorrow till then